Hello, and welcome to Decent Jobs on a Living Planet, an environmental podcast where we talk to people, from experts to activists, about just transition and what it means from a Scottish perspective. The term just transition originates from trade unions, so what does it mean? We know that fossil fuels are fueling the climate crisis and we need to move away from them. However, fossil fuel industry is a major player in Scottish and UK society and economy. There are 30,000 people directly employed in the UK offshore oil industry, a further 70,000 in domestic supply chains, and thousands more living in communities heavily reliant on the fossil fuel industry. How do we make a transition away from fossil fuels in a way that is just for workers, communities and the planet? With the global pandemic and economic turmoil, the context of discussions around just transition are hugely different now. While jobs in many industries are looking precarious, jobs in the fossil fuel industry are more precarious than ever and workers' rights have come to a forefront. Talking about a just transition is therefore more important than ever. Due to the pandemic, we recorded this episode over a video call, so we thank you for bearing with us with the audio quality. So today we're joined by Emily Tricarico and we'll be discussing post-work society, both as a concept and also what this means in reality in terms of policy implementation. So Emily, could you just tell us about what you do and what an ecological economist is? Yeah, thank you very much for having me today. Um, so yeah, um, currently I'm, I'm uh, working part-time um, in a women's mental health charity and the other part-time on an environmental campaign um, to curb the advertisement of uh, high carbon goods. So not really anything related to um, the just transition of post-work. Uh, future, but on on the side of of this, I'm just you know doing some activism and and uh, yeah, kind of still um, interested in in those fields and trying to push for that uh, in my activism mostly. So in terms of what an ecological economist is, so there are not clearly any strict definition of the field, but maybe the most easy way to describe it and the more accurate ways that it's a school of economics that takes into account the sort of limited boundaries of our planet. And so therefore it positions itself in a position with um, mainstream economics or um, what's called uh, neoclassical economics, basically, um, whose entire field is based upon the notion that we can have uh, relentless economic growth. So, um, but in terms of what, for instance, an ecological economist would stand for or what they would do, it depends um, on their interest and, and where they come from, because some people come from all the natural sciences, whereas other people are more from the social sciences. Um, but in general, some people, um, you know, to, to list some examples, some would be focused on developing alternative measures of well-being um, away from GDP growth. Um, others are interested in the financial aspect of our economies. Um, and there are also some folks who do the sort of economic uh, modeling side of things. So they would put together what's called like an ecological macroeconomic model. <laughs> um 
But uh, yeah, so I think it's also important to note that without going too much into the detail, the overlaps between this school of thought and other non-orthodox, so heterodox school of economic thought. So um, because there's, there's a big overlaps between, for instance, with feminist economics, uh, Marxian political economy, institutional economics, post-Keynesian economics, and the list, the list is long. And there have been really recently efforts to kind of try to to build a comprehensive uh, view of a heterodox economics. And this is something that maybe you have come across, and that's called um, pluralist economics. And this is something that is pushed for to be taught at schools and universities, because currently um, schools and universities only mainly teach um, the neoclassical, so the mainstream uh, version of economics. Um, yeah. And personally, maybe the last thing I want to say as well there is that I align myself closely with Marxian political economy. So this really much informs my understanding um, of ecological economics and also the policies I stand, you know, I stand for. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to flag this because it doesn't, my view doesn't represent the, the entire field necessarily. And as um, our podcast explores um, a just transition, you know, what does a just transition mean to you from your perspective? To me, so I'm kind of less interested in the technocratic conception of a just transition. So the sort of one that we see used by governments and organizations calling for like uh, green jobs um, in renewables. And so I tend to view the just transition in a more systemic uh, shift kind of way. So to me, it's, a, it's about a move towards a post-capitalist future. Um, so it's really kind of a big move there. But um, a just transition for me is also the idea that we have we would have an economy that rewards the labor of care and um, it would tip the balance of power away from capital towards labor. And we can discuss maybe a bit about this a bit more uh, later on. But um, obviously, um, I think creating, you know, green jobs is something that is really important to do. And we need to shut down the fossil fuel industries in a just way as soon as possible. But um, it's also important to me that we see green jobs are not only in terms of renewable or retrofitting the housing sector, for instance, but it's also about the work of nurses and doctors or carers, small-scale sustainable farmers, as well as artists, creatives, community organizers, etc. So, um, because I think there's a danger in sticking to this narrow conception of just transition, as it can maybe easily be captured by corporate interests. And also, there is no guarantee that those green jobs that we are asking for would be decent um, and fair paid fair paid jobs so we really um just transition should really also focus on that um just transition is also very much about doing less paid work so that we can appreciate more and care for one another we can appreciate life uh, more and care for the natural environment etc so it's not only it should not be viewed only as a job creation in itself but about how we redistribute the work in our society um, because currently we have some people who are overworked. Um, so we have a class of overworked people as well as a class of underworked people um, and or un unemployed people. So how do we make sure that we redistribute the work, the work equally? So, yeah, these are some kind of um, different ways of how I, I see the just transition, basically. 
and I'd like to just go into the real basics as many people who haven't studied economics or feel intimidated by the subject might not fully understand the current economic system that we live in. So could you just describe what neoliberal capitalism is and how it affects different aspects of our society? So I, I won't claim that I can um, explain how capitalism works in uh, in detail and, and yeah, and it's probably too much to go into now um, of like uh, Marxian theories and concepts of, of what capitalism is. But um, basically, um, capitalism is a system that is characterized by constant accumulation of wealth or what um, ecological economics would call uh, economic growth. And this um, is based upon the exploitation of labor and as well as the appropriation of nature. And so capitalism creates value and surplus value, so profit, through the exploitation of labor. And it can mainly do so in two ways. Um, so one way is by extending the worker's day and increasing the intensity of work, such as, for instance, um, having uh, making more work more continuous, having less um, breaks, um, as well as increasing the dis disciplinary rule of work. And the other way is by adopting new technology, uh, which increase labor productivity. But on top of this, capitalism relies also on the unpaid labor um, of women, mostly because we, uh, traditionally women will take this work, as well as the work of nature. And so this falls in Marxian terms under the umbrella of social reproductive labor. So it's all the work that goes around feeding people, clothing, caring for them, um, as well as all the work nature does, because it, it's, it's taken for free, basically. Um, and this played really a crucial role at the beginning of capitalism to create this sort of what is called primary accumulation of capital to kickstart capitalism, basically. But it still does today. But um, by being carried out for free and taken for free, um, it allowed the sort of traditional male wage labor, so paid work, to become profitable. So without this work that is taken for free, um, it wouldn't be profitable. So I think this is a really important point to note. Um, but because your question was also about like what is neoliberal capitalism, I think it's important to note that the this is the latest version of, of capitalism. And again, without going too much into the detail about it, because this could be an entire podcast, um, it's about having an economic laissez-faire, uh, deregulation um, as a whole, um, the withdrawal of the state from its welfare function as well, the primacy of corporate interests in all of political and economic decisions, etc., etc., and there's so many ways that um, that this system impacts on our society. So I don't think, um, yeah, it, I wouldn't go into the list of how it impacts, but mainly for the purposes of our discussion today, I would just say that capitalism is fundamentally incompatible uh, with an economy that rewards good work that would benefit people and the planet. And because of it has at at its heart that this this drive towards pro profit seeking sorry so so yeah it's it's um not compatible basically with with a just transition in my view 
So many aspects of COVID-19 pandemic have led people to question neoliberal capitalism. And I'm wondering, you know, from an ecological econ economist perspective, um, I'd be interested to know what aspects you have found to be of particular importance or significance. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so, I mean, at the start of the pandemic, I got kind of really angry and upset at how um, we could see some people in the environmental movement sort of praising the benefits of this crisis because of the sudden drop in CO2 emissions and pollution levels in general, as well as um, uh, nature began, you know, rewilding and species appearing again in cities, etc. And obviously this was going to be like um, a side effect of a, of a lockdown because the, the world was put on pause for a while and human activities were forced to slow down but um, in my view these thoughts can often lead to very problematic uh, position and um, ideas of a world whereby humans are portrayed as the enemy mainly or even the disease as we have seen on um, some Extinction Rebellion account which was later revealed to be a fake post but still it's actually some thinking that is prevalent within the environmental movement and this is kind of closely related to a sort of um, what's called like a neo-Malthusian view of the world and Malthus was like an economist who was famous for his essay on the principle of population in which he basically argues that population growth is a hindrance to economic prosperity and it's um, what is causing famines in the world etc. And yeah, this this view is very much still present in the environmental movement that we need basically to tackle growth because that's the biggest issue of our, our ecological collapse. Um, but it's also kind of like present, present within sort of mainstream media and um, documentaries around um, ecological collapse, for instance, that humans are to blame, basically. And so in my view, this really distracts us from talking about the real cause, they're basically being our capitalist system. And it's uh, problematic because it hides questions of power and inequality and injustices, um, which are also driving ecological collapse, basically. Um, so yeah, this is, this is one side of, of it. But on the other hand, um, ecological economists, for instance, have really tried to push back against this narrative that the current recession that we are seeing with the pandemic is something that would be similar to uh, a degrowth world. And so economic recession has nothing to do with what ecological economists are calling for in their having a planned degrowth. And this is about downscaling of human activities which would be planned, so it's not happens um, out of a crisis, basically. Because uh, we know that an economic recession is not only bad for people, but it's also bad for the planet. And I think it's important to note this because it doesn't, um, the pandemic hasn't helped us to sort of reorientate the system towards level of fairness or stability, nor does it help shutting down the biggest polluters um, in our society, and transition towards lower carbon economies. Um, and as we have seen, um, the big polluters like fossil fuel industries or the aviation sector has already, um, you know, tried to push for being, uh, for bailouts 
um, by the government and because of the leverage power they have the economy that is so big uh, they can really like push for for being given granted um, co conditions by the government and, and being helped basically by the government so yeah ultimately I think what we need is um, we need a green new deal to help us you know to transition away from uh, fossil fuels and towards um, a regenerative economy that would value care work and sort of shift the power away from capital towards labor or putting people before profits basically so this is you know this is what um ecological economics um economists sorry would stand for basically many people are aware of the issues with capitalism as you've previously mentioned, but they struggle to imagine a different way of structuring our society. And you've written about how failing to provide an alternative vision limits the success of social movements which are protesting against the current economic order. So could you talk a bit about the theories of degrowth and post-work, um, as well as some of the practicalities of translating these ideas into practice? Um, yeah, these concepts and, and theories are like yeah big ideas as well um so um i'll i'll kind of summarize them uh, but obviously there's a lot of literature around the subject so if anyone is interested maybe that would be good then to point to some literature um after after this this podcast um so yeah first of all basically the concept of degrowth as i, I mentioned a bit before is um about a downscaling of material production and therefore it poses the question of how we reorganize economic and social activity which would support um social and human well-being while remaining within the bounded capacity of our planet and degrowth is often a concept that is of uh, can be misunderstood um for gdp degrowth only but um it's it's not what it's meant um it's basically a degrowth of our material capacities away from our obsession with economic growth and towards alternative economic models of um development that would benefit both people and the planet and a post work future on the other hand is based upon the idea of freeing people from the constraints of wage labor so it would consist in reducing paid or necessary work to a maximum um, and provide people with a basic income so that they can devote their time to the activities that are typically outside what is called the circuit of capitalist production. So all currently unpaid activity activities which are about care, creative or artistic work. Um, and... There are overlaps between um, degrowth and post-work, um, but the idea of a post-work future takes its origin in the autonomist Marxist tradition. And um, without going into too much of the detail there either, it's um, I think it's important to have that in mind because this autonomist movement was basically placing itself in opposition with traditional workerist movements, so-called, and um, these other movements were fighting for better conditions at work mainly, but autonomist Marxists were demanding less work altogether, as well as a recognition of all the unpaid work mostly carried out by women within the home. 
Um, so yeah, they were they were placing their emphasis on this, um, and they were also critical of the productive incentive at the heart of our economy. Um, so yeah, to me this is really important because it's um, what, in my view, differentiates between degrowth and post-work thinking, because the latter really comes from directly an understanding of class struggles and the place of class struggles, whereas the concept of degrowth takes its roots more from the academic world and at its origin is actually a more ethical and philosophical position, and it's not an economic position at all. It has become more lately, but um, at its origins it wasn't. But um, yeah, in terms of of a bit more um, the practicalities, when we we think about uh, discussing degrowth and post-work futures, what comes to mind is the ideas around work time reduction and universal basic income. And these are often policies that we see are proposed to go hand in hand because they're quite uh, complementary. Um, and because they are also, both of them, redistributive policies, um, which mean that they're based upon a redistribution of wealth from the top towards the bottom. Um, so yeah, yeah, this is what comes uh, to mind practically in terms of imagining um, a degrowth and, and post-work future. How do we implement policies such as a shorter working week in such a way that doesn't make uh, those in a financially precarious position already, you know, more, more worse off? Yeah, this is a really important point to note, actually. So thanks for flagging this up. Yeah, so a proponents of a shorter working week are very keen that this should not mean a reduction of income at all. Um, so as as we have seen, um, as we have had, basically, when we, we got the weekend um, and the eight-hour working day, thanks to the fight from the labour movement, Work time reduction was possible because of the increased productive capacities of our economies, which allowed us to produce the same amount of output with less labor. And so therefore, this could be um, translated into workers having more free time. But since the um, 1980s, basically with the neoliberal um, economic turn, we saw that these economic gains, rather than being translating into more free time for workers, they were directly appropriated by capitalists. And so this, you know, went to fill, um, you know, the pockets of the, the big corporates and, and you know, the, the, the wealthy people of this world, uh, rather than just being translated into free times for, for the general public. So, yeah, ultimately, I think calling for work time reduction is really about shifting the balance of power away from capital and towards labor. And it, in my view, it should not be argued on the basis that workers would be more productive if they were to work one day less, for instance, because this argument could be easily turned against us. And also, it still puts economic productivity as a sort of primary aim. Whereas, um, if we take into account, you know, ecological concerns, we know that economic productivity cannot be a goal anymore. But yeah, it's obviously an argument that is, is being, um, put forward as a sort of short win argument to convince companies, for instance, to trial out a four day week, for instance. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's, it's used in this way, but in my view, it's, it's can be quite problematic to, to put it forward. How can we radically downscale economic activity 
whilst providing universal basic income for all. And I'm thinking, you know, particularly in the current, you know, economic turmoil that we're experiencing right now, that might come up as an argument for people who might be questioning these ideas. So I think the argument for UBI comes from the same thinking behind a shorter working week. And like I was saying before, that they both policies are quite complementary um, because they are redistributive policies. So they mean they need uh, to be a redistribution of wealth from the top, basically. So a basic income should be funded by all this wealth that has been accumulated in our capitalist society because we have very productive society, very rich society, but all this wealth is just, um, I mean, not just, but it's its unfairly distributed. And so it's about how we channel this towards people away from the big corporates and the billionaires of this world. Um, so it's not about creating more economic productivity, but how we redistribute it as we have it now. Um, and I think, yeah, we know that UBI has its proponents from both the left and the right side of the political spectrum. And so we can therefore have like completely different outcomes because um, people from the right would see it as a way to, you know, strip all the other benefits, welfare benefits that there are and kind of make just, you know, just give one UBI and that's it. And then um, so, so there is less of um, state intervention there. So it's not a socialist policy at all. Um, but a progressive lefty UBI um, on the other hand, I mean, there, there are different versions and without going too much into the details about this, the idea uh, behind this is that it would sort of help getting rid of the inhumane and even economically irrelevant workfare uh, policies that we have, um, which basically force people to be constantly fit for work and looking for work, even if they can't even work or should not work for health reasons or any kind of reasons yeah so it's it's about a fundamental um revaluation of work in our societies and yeah by not um giving a ubi to everyone basically we it's about reconsidering what work is um because it could also act as a wage for the trad traditionally unpaid labor that is carried out by women in the home mostly and yeah for once this work would be valued equally um, alongside other kind of traditional paid work but yeah in, in my view it's also important that we don't see UBI as a sort of one-size-fits-all policy and it should not replace the welfare state either because we should still argue for having free universal services like education healthcare etc I mean, you probably heard there is this discussion around uh, UBS, so another term there, so universal basic services, um, and it's they are often put in opposition, UBI and UBS, but um, it's something that they don't that doesn't need to be in opposition because we can still have free universal services, like I was saying, education, healthcare. Um, they argue to have transport as well in there, and and plenty, you know, housing as well would be one. Um, but a UBI is still something that could complement this. Um, and again, then it depends how much uh, the level of the UBI would be, you know, in comparison to having a UBS on the side. So in terms of the practicalities, um, yeah, then, then it's another question. But uh, we, could, we can still and we should basically have uh, both. Thank you for um, going into detail about that. I'd just like to ask if there's 
any other blueprints or living examples that provide alternatives to our current system, which is rooted in capitalism and neoliberalism. We can see that there are UBI pilots all around the world. Uh, we know this. And Finland, for instance, is one of the most prominent examples that is often um, quoted recently because it was a positive trial of a UBI um, and yeah, it had good good outcomes. But yeah, there are UBI pilots around the world, um, so so they are they are being implemented. Um, in terms of a shorter working week, many companies um, and industries have have started trials themselves. So it has been mostly at a, a company level. But uh, recently, and you, should, you probably know about this, that um, Scotland and uh, New Zealand have put forward the idea of having um, a four-day working week as part of the recovery from the, the pandemic. Um, and organizations like the four-day week campaign um, are really pushing for this at the moment. Um, so it's really um, worth following their work if anyone is interested because they have put a motion to the British Parliament for an early motion on, on the subject of trialing out a four-day week. So it's getting a lot of traction at the moment. And yeah, and so that's great. Um, and yeah, another, another organization as well is uh, Autonomy that is doing a lot of work around basic income and shorter working week. And these organizations are really trying to lobby governments um, and to push for, for these policies. But they are also working with um, companies that have been trialing this out. So it's interesting that it, while we talk about these policies, that they are happening already in some places. So, yeah, the final question that we have for you is um, kind of uh, about what you're focusing your energy on now. Because, you know, at th this time seems like such an important one. Um, and the decisions made now could completely restructure our society for the better. Or it could just be like more of the same bad stuff we've had recently, like more deregulation, austerity and erosion of democracy. Um, so I'm just wondering what you're hopeful about at this time and where you're directing your energy. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. And yeah, unfortunately, at the moment, I mean, as we all see, is more um, the balance tipping towards the latter, um, like you were talking about deregulation, austerity and um, erosion of democracy, etc., just because we have right-wing governments that are favouring neoliberal economic policies that are putting profit above above people um as it stands uh, but on the other hand um yeah we have seen with the rise of the recent black lives matter protests for instance amidst the pandemic um this kind of um yeah unprecedented movement and it shows that um, social movements are still there um very much alive and and strong and that crisis can act as a sort of tipping point moment where um, we see also a massive uprising of people, for instance. So yeah, I'm I'm hopeful about that, and also um, I'm hopeful about the fact that we have seen an increase in union membership amid the pandemic, because basically um, it has forced people to organize collectively and fight for their basic rights at work, basically. And some unions such as um, the UVW uh, um, in the UK, um, which is a small union, they have uh, won legal battles against the government. So they have even put the government to court, the British government to court, and, and won their 
So, yeah, I think um, this is really hopeful, actually. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen in a void. It's often as a result of, you know, some tragic events where people lose their lives, but can also act as a waking up call for a lot of people. And I think um, a lot of people right now are, are yeah going through this uh but in terms of yeah the, the future uh, well as I, I was mentioning unions there i really see unions as key actors in the transition that we need and the just transition especially and this movement around uh building back better that we are seeing um organizations and governments call, calling for uh, because basically they have an important role um, and they need to really be taken into account um, because people need to be able to organize within their workplaces and they are key actors within within a transition to towards a post-capitalist future, basically, in my view. So I think, yeah, I will, I'm, I'm really still interested in basically how we build um, an environmental movement, environmental politics that is about um, class politics at its heart and this is something that I think this current moment is forcing us to do and it's a shame that still the environmental and climate movement is not really on board with this because this would make it so much more powerful because the, the movement need to be able to talk about workers rights as much as it needs to be talking about climate breakdown basically um, so we need to really see the link between the two made really stronger so I'm interested in, in, in that kind of area. And on a personal level, um, I'm setting up a website around uh, progressive economic ideas with some colleagues in the field. And so we're trying to sort of democratize economics because I think this is also a key moment where people want to learn more about um, how the world functions and how the economy functions. And so um, economics should be for everyone. It should not be only for academics or government officials, basically. That sounds fantastic. I'm so glad that you're um, thinking about democratising economics and making it more accessible for people, because it's definitely something that I just have not researched that much, just because I was a little bit intimidated by the subject, but was also very aware that it's super important and, you know, Every everything I was looking into, when you start looking back a bit further, you're like, oh yeah, it's because of the economic system. That sounds amazing what you're doing and super important. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, no, thank you. Speak to you later. Take yeah. care. Bye. Emily has kindly shared some resources which relate to our discussions. These include a four-day week campaign which pushes for a national four-day week, autonomy, which is a think tank focused on the future of work, and also Exploring Economics Platform. This is a platform for learning about heterodox economics. It covers all schools of thought, not only ecological economics, and it's got videos and articles adapted for different levels. We hope you find these useful. This podcast was brought to you by Young Friends of the Earth Scotland, a network of young activists fighting for climate and social justice. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter.